It's great to see you here today. Welcome to those of you joining us on Facebook this morning. Glad you're with us also. Uh, listening to Kyle talk about snow this morning, I got up uh, 6.20 or so, whatever it was. I opened up the blinds and it's snowing like crazy. I went oofta and shut the blinds. <laughs> and I begin to think about that. Uh, that uh, and in my mind, I thought, are you kidding me? And I begin to think, where do I get these sayings from? And um, uh, a while back, my wife brought home this bag. She got it from somebody, I can't remember. It's kind of sayings from Minnesota growing up. And, of course, Ufta is a big one. I have a, I'm almost 100% Norwegian, so all my relatives said Ufta. And I still say Ufta 50 years later. You know, it just gets ingrained in you. I, I got to looking at this list, and I thought, yeah, whatever's on there. I say whatever all the time. And my whatever means whatever. You know, it's kind of good with attitude, you know. Something, that, that's the way you say whatever, whatever. It means I really don't care. But one of the, I begin to look at some of these things and I thought, hot dish, oh yeah. yeah. My mom served hot dish all the time. What that meant was whatever was left over was sewn together and made hot. And that's what you had for supper. And I never was one who caught on the, to the phrase, you betcha. Uh, but boy, is that popular around this area, you betcha. And when we got into Canada, they say A a lot. Uh, or not Canada, but North Dakota. They say A a lot. And they do say A a lot in, in, in Minnesota. But it's interesting how you can grow up in this uh, culture and you can be gone from it for like 50 years. And it still drastically influences what you say and how you react. This morning as we talk on the resurrection of Jesus Christ... That event, that pivotal point of history, it should change our language. And it should change how we react, amen? It should be just earth-changing, just radical in its nature and how it affects us. And this morning we're going to talk on the centrality of the resurrection. It was a year ago uh, in our fall series here at Grace Point that I talked about this idea that we're a remnant Anymore, We have a remnant status as, uh, as Christ followers. Uh, what, what I mean by that phrase is that Christianity is no longer like on the main page of culture. By and large, Christianity has been pushed to the sidelines or the, the, as a note, uh, you know, on a page of paper, so to speak, uh, when it comes to our culture. And we, instead of fighting that, we have to begin to understand it and have to react differently then and talk differently to a culture far gone from God. And one of the ways that we begin to effectively speak into the culture we find ourselves in now is by becoming people who understand the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, I follow along with what happening in, in our local community, and uh, there have been a couple of experts that have come on to the SDSU campus and talked about uh, Bible, you know, accuracy, or some, in some cases, what they claim to be inaccuracy, and blah, 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 and oftentimes, we Christians can get caught up in the wrong arguments. Now, I'm, I have a high regard for the Bible. If you know me at all, I have a really, really high regard for Scripture. I, I, I understand it's accurate and Holy Spirit inspired, but with a culture far gone from God, the place to start your communication with them probably isn't by having an argument on the accuracy of the Bible. Rather, it's talking about the life-changing hope that we have in serving the resurrected Jesus Christ. 
You know, the early church had phenomenal growth during a time when basically God was giving them the Bible. Amen? So they weren't reliant upon the accuracy of the Bible. What were they relying upon? The accuracy of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They just had an order to how they presented the gospel, the life message of Jesus to the culture. And perhaps we live in an era and a time when we have to get back to that kind of thought process. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and the host was saying to his guest, as the guest was sharing some of his findings on the culture we now find ourselves in, he said, it's like we've gone back to first century Christianity. And the guest said to the host, welcome to first century Christianity, because that's where we're going now in the United States. And what he meant by that was people don't have understanding of the basics of the Bible anymore. And if the first century church could grow like crazy without making the issues about the accuracy of Scripture, rather they were focused on the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, maybe that's a word for us today, amen? Maybe what, what God wants to happen is, is for us to have an elevated understanding and a centrality of focus around the resurrected Jesus Christ. And then other things will find their proper place in their proper time. So today we're going to talk on this critical perspective that the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. And, and I think we unintentionally diminish the resurrection importance in the Christian story. Oftentimes what I see happen, and it's unintentional, is Christianity is almost presented like it's a, you know, motivational tool or it's a self-help tool. You can do marriage a little bit better. You can do parenting a little bit better. And, and of course you can do all those things better as a Christ follower. Amen? But the main thing, beloved, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It just changes everything. It changes how we view life. It changes our hopes, our expectations. It, it, it's, it's to be on our mind. It's to be in our heart. It's to be how we live in, in regards to people who have the hope of resurrection also. Amen? And then I think if we actually live that way out loud, people are going to ask you and I, why are you like this? And then you be ready to give a reason for the hope you have in Jesus Christ. And at some point, you can get into robust discussion on the accuracy and inerrancy of Scripture. But when Christianity is presented primarily as motivational teaching, it's diminished. Because that's not what it is. It's transformational teaching. Amen? It's about becoming something you were formerly not. It's about becoming born again in Jesus Christ and having the hope in the resurrection so much so that you expect to experience the same thing that Jesus experienced. Amen? That's what we probably need to be speaking into a culture at this time. So with that bit of background, I want to read to you this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses um, 1 through 22. Listen to this scripture. Now, brothers and sisters... I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you are believed in vain. For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, 
and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed." But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, in fact, if the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits are those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Amen, huh? Powerful scripture. So this morning, we're on week six of our intentional worship series. And in this series of messages, all we're trying to accomplish with you is that you become so preoccupied with who God is that he's on your mind and he's in your heart and he affects how you live. And when that truly transpires, we become people then who are worshipers of God. And everything about the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ should take our breath away, amen? Should cause us to be preoccupied with it. Um, it was a week ago that Vicki and I headed out to Ro uh, Ro Rocky Mountain National Park on the Estes Park side uh, to do some hiking in the mountains for several days, and we really enjoyed that. And those hikes are, are kind of strenuous. It's like doing lunges for six hours straight as you go up and down these mountains. You know, I've learned this from mountain hiking. Whenever you go down, you kind of get discouraged because you know you got to go back up. So it's not really like really well received. And, and so we did this for five days, and uh, on the last day of hiking, Vicky and I were talking, and I said, let's just try to go on an easy hike. I don't even know why I think like that. Because you're in the mountains, and there's nothing easy about hiking in the mountains. But for some reason, if I delude myself a little bit like that, it helps me get going, I guess. I don't know what. So we go to this, it's called um, this hike that went around the Cub Lake. And um, we're going around the Cub Lake, and the first three miles were really flat. And I'm going, praise God, got an answer to my prayer. And then it started uphill, up the side of the mountain. And we were going up these switchbacks uh, and getting higher and higher above uh, the Cub Lake. And, and the, when you look at the Cub Lake, it looks like perfect moose habitat. It's kind of swampy. It's got the willows in the, in the shoreline and the long, reedy grass that they like to eat. So I was looking intently for some moose because I hadn't seen any moose yet. And they're not that prevalent on the east side of the park. They're very prevalent on the west side of the park. And so I'm kind of looking for that. We didn't see any. We're walking up the switchbacks. And then we kind of noticed and we started talking. This is like bear country here. And I, I guess I found out later from Vicky that a bear had been spotted on the very trail that we were on. 
And so I'm looking for bear. I'm looking down at the lake. In other words, I'm a little bit distracted, right? I'm not really looking at the trail. I figure the trail's safe. And Vicky's taking pictures, and we're just kind of going around. And so out of the side of my eye, I kind of notice. You ever have that sense where you notice something out of the side of your eye? Well, I kind of see something big in the trail in front of me, and I remember thinking subconsciously, why is that great big old monster rock in the middle of the trail? You know, but I didn't pay any attention to it because I'm busy looking at the Cub Lake. I'm looking for bears, and I'm looking at the rocks on the trail so I don't fall on my face. So then I turn around, and there in front of me is a female moose, like five feet from me. She was the rock laying on the trail eating. And I go, oh, like this. And I back up, and I tell you, immediately my heart rate's about 150. And I'm, I quit breathing, and I'm, the adrenaline's flowing, and Vicky's taking pictures. So we have a picture here. There it is. But she's taking pictures, and we're both kind of backing up, and I'm going, I'm your friend. I'm trying to be, you know. And she starts going the other way, and she kind of made this low, lowing sound. And I'm going, I don't think she's happy right now with us. And then there's this, this, this bull uh, moose sitting there down the trail. And I said, oh, you got somebody with you. You know, and so now I'm backing up and just staying there still. And they gradually walked away from us. And then they went down the side of the mountain right into that moose habitat. And it was just cool to watch these creatures. But she was tall. I mean, I looked like, oh, you know, you're like seven feet tall. You don't see that in the picture. They're tall and gangly, you know. They kind of look clumsy, but man, could they go down the side of the mountain. Well, at any rate, when that happened, it just took my breath away. Had a big adrenaline rush. Heart rate went way up. And then I had to think, breathe? After a moment, I'm not breathing. I quit breathing. And you know what? It was a great adventure after it was all done. But in the moment, it just shocked me. It, it, just, it, it just was something that preoccupied me. Listen, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that encounter a hundred times over. Amen? It should just take our breath away. It should cause an adrenaline rush. It should be something that gets our heart rate up because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so utterly amazing. And so this morning, I want to talk with you for a few moments on the miraculous death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The way that Jesus died even demonstrated that he is not normal. We don't even have to get to his resurrection to begin to see the divinity and the miraculous aspect of Jesus Christ. We think of the resurrection oftentimes in miraculous terminology, but we need to expand that to including the way that he died. Listen to Luke chapter 23. I'm going to read to you verses 44 through 49. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people were gathered to witness the sight, saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. So Christ is crucified. As he hung on the cross dying, we're told that it went dark outside, even though it was midday. Now I've heard people say, well, it could have just been an eclipse. Okay, it could have been an eclipse, but the timing was supernatural, amen? It happened when he was dying. 
And we're told at the same time, the curtain of the temple is torn. Now, that's not a sheet being torn in half. That was a thick piece of material. And it was torn in half, signifying that God did not reside in the temple made by man. Now he resided in the hearts of his followers. And what really speaks to me was this idea that Jesus didn't get mad at those who were crucifying him. He wasn't angry. Instead, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He was on mission, man. Amen? He was doing this on purpose. He was doing it for a reason. And that centurion, that Roman-hardened soldier, saw all this taking place, all these things surrounding the death of Jesus, and he was awestruck, and his breath was taken away, and he said, surely this was a righteous man. This was God at work. Amen? This is not a normal death. Amen? Right? Even the way Christ died, is full of divinity and the miraculous. And then we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus was buried. This means he was good and dead. He wasn't faking it. He was good and dead. And we're told elsewhere in Scripture, over in Luke chapter 23, that Joseph, a member of the Jewish leadership at that time, went to Pilate, the Roman ruler, and requested the body of Christ so that he could bury Christ. And Joseph wrapped him in grave cloth and put him in his own tomb and rolled a stone in front of him. And lots of people witnessed this, signifying to you and I that Christ was good and dead. He didn't fake his death, which brings us to point two here. Jesus was dead and buried. His death was real. Therefore, his resurrection is miraculous. Amen? His death was very real. And 1 Corinthians 15 goes on to say that he was raised from the dead on the third day. Now, I don't know about you, but this weather out here reminds me of March and April weather, doesn't it? The snow. So it reminds me a little bit of Easter. And this message is kind of an Easter message given in October. So usually during an Easter message, I'll say he is risen, and you say what? Here we go. He is risen. We are having a little bit of Easter here in October. Hallelujah. And Luke chapter 24 lists all these people that saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. And likewise, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 lists all these people that saw the resurrected Jesus Christ, which brings us to point number three. Jesus rose from the dead and was seen by hundreds of witnesses. Not a few, hundreds of witnesses. Now, if I was going to fabricate a story about resurrection, the last thing I would say is that there's hundreds of witnesses to it. Because someone would come forth and say, no, this isn't true, you're making it up. But this is not a fabricated story, it's real. He truly has been raised from the dead, and there are hundreds of witnesses that saw him die. In fact, his death was so miraculous, like we said, that the Roman centurion who witnesses was awestruck by it. All these people saw him buried, put in the tomb. He's dead. He's wrapped in grave cloths. And then hundreds saw him raised from the dead. Why? Because the resurrection matters so much that God really wanted to stamp authenticity on that account. And here's another line of logic. If, If for some reason someone says to you ever, well, I just think that This whole thing about Jesus is a made-up story, that he was a good teacher, but he didn't really die and he wasn't really resurrected. I don't try to really argue with that person. I don't go back 
to, to trying to, you know, logic them into the kingdom. But all I, all I usually say is this. Why would hundreds of people who saw all this die rather than deny it if it was a lie? Why would they die for a lie? To me, when I was a young believer, when I ran into that understanding that all these you know, early apostles were martyred, a horrific death, and so many of the earlier followers of Jesus Christ died rather than deny it, I go, wow, okay. There's something to the story. It's, it's incredibly important. Uh, you know, it's central to us as followers to understand the rightful place of the resurrection. Everything about the death and resurrection of Jesus is miraculous. Even the Gospels that were written right around and after the, uh, the, the, the resurrection of Christ, they were written within six years of his resurrection. I'm talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Even, even those were written historically in such an early time period, that it would be hard to fabricate them and make them up without somebody saying that they're not true. Amen? So the whole, the whole account of Christ's death and resurrection just, it's, it's life-changing. It's life-altering. And, and we're, we're to understand that this is the first fruits of what God has in store for each one of us. Do you understand what I'm saying by that? First fruits just means the first produce uh, uh, to come, and, uh, and, and Jesus is the first fruits of resurrection, meaning you and I who place our hope and trust and faith in Christ too are going to experience that same power that raised him from the dead. Is not that cool or what? That we too will be raised from the dead like Christ was raised from the dead. And when we get to understanding that, embracing that, and living in accordance with that, that's beloved is worship. Amen? That's being a worshiper of God. So we add this plethora of witnesses to the death the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to make sure for some reason, if we don't believe this, God foretold uh, the crucifixion of Christ a thousand years before it take place in Psalm 22. In fact, Psalm 22 is such an accurate description of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. As some claim, it must have been written after the fact. But ancient documentation shows that it was written way before uh, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It was written way before... The Roman Empire was in place, and crucifixion was even known about. In fact, crucifixion was really developed by the Phoenicians, who then passed it on to the Romans, who perfected it as a means of a torturous execution. And they used it, of course, in the hopes that it would diminish the criminal element of their culture. The Jews, for example, stoned people to death. They didn't use this crucifixion as a means of death. But listen to what Psalm 22 says. Way before this takes place, it describes the, 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 what would take place to Messiah. Listen to Psalm 22, verses 14 through 18. It says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. So when you're crucified, things dislocate in your body as you hang, you know, in an inappropriate way on parts. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. Do you remember what happened when they pierced the side of Jesus? What came out of him? Water. And basically the way you died when you were crucified was by congestive heart failure and your chest just filled up with water and it felt like your heart was melting within you. My mouth is dried up like a pot's herd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust um, of death. What did Jesus ask for? I thirst. They offered him a sponge, right? With wine vinegar on it. Dogs surround me. That's another way of saying Gentiles surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. There it is. Psalm 22 is talking about something that's going to transpire 
thousand years down the road, basically. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me, which they did with Jesus Christ. You who raised, you know, you who healed others, why can't you heal yourself? And they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Wow. This is just an accurate description of what took place at the resurrection. It's just divine and miraculous. You know why I think God did this? Because resurrection is so central to our faith. He wanted us to get it. And one of the best ways we're going to speak into a culture today that's far gone from God, that doesn't understand biblical language, is to go back and do what the early church did. Preach resurrection. After all, did the early church have the Bible yet? It was being given to them as it's grown like crazy. Right? So what were they preaching? Christ, Christ crucified and resurrected. They're, they're preaching the simplicity of the gospel. And it was super effective. Maybe we're to those times again. What do you think? Maybe we're making this more complicated sometimes than we need to make it. Maybe what, what people need to see in our times are just you and me being in love with Christ, so drastically changed by the hope we have in him that they ask what's going on, and we say, I serve a resurrected Savior, and I place my hope in him. Maybe we need to quit defending and count on the Holy Spirit to do the work of transformation. What do you think? I'm just throwing some things out there for us to think. We are not people without hope, amen? Just because we live in times that look bleak doesn't mean that God doesn't have it in control and hasn't given us a way to minister effectively. So let's have a moment of prayer here. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Lord, we worship you and realize that our faith is built on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's just central to who we are as your people. Uh, we don't have to turn our minds off to be in awe of you, though, God. In Psalm 22, just demonstrates to us your sovereignty and your control. You work a plan, God. You put a plan forth, and you work that plan, and that plan is Jesus Christ. He wasn't some poor good teacher that accidentally got himself killed. He is the son of God that went to the cross on purpose. And we just rejoice in that this morning and what it means. And we rejoice, Jesus, that you're the first fruits of what's to come, that the same power that raised you from the dead is at work in each one of us who have given our life to you by faith, God, and you too will raise us from the dead. Praise be to your name, God. May this hope prevail in us. May it just bubble out of us. May it cause us to uh, be excited about you. And may that excitement be something then that ministers to the culture that we find ourselves in. In your name, Jesus, amen. Now, I've been saying this already this morning, but I'm just going to state it all right. The resurrection central. And Paul then goes through this kind of line of reasoning of why the resurrection is central. Because if Jesus is not raised from the dead, the Christian faith, he says, it's futile. It's just worthless. It's just fakery. It's a myth. It's a fable. And debates that took place at SDSU here recently on the accuracy of the Bible, why do they even matter, right? If Christ isn't raised from the dead. Preaching like I'm doing right now is useless because it's just perpetuating a myth, Paul says, if there's no resurrection. Your faith is useless because it's misplaced trust in something that isn't true. And then, this is really sad, you're still in your sins. John said this about Jesus Christ, John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, if Christ isn't who he said he was, and he hath not been resurrected, then the sins of the world have not been taken away. Then those who die trusting in Jesus are lost. I've heard it said by some that even if the Christian faith were not true, it's still the best way to live. Ah, 
cute saying, don't say that. Because our faith hinges on resurrection. And Paul just went through this whole line of logic of why if we say it's still the best way to live, we're missing the point entirely because we're resurrection people, amen? And to say, even well-intentioned, well, it's still the best way to live. Oh, no, it isn't. You're duped. You've been fooled. Because we're resurrection people. That just must prevail, and we got to get away from these cute little ditties that don't mean anything. We don't need to do that. What our culture needs to see right now is a whole bunch of people that are convinced about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's so convinced in our lives, we are so convinced that we're living radically different. And when we go to a funeral, we don't sit there and mourn as those that have no hope. We mourn knowing that we're going to miss that person, but that person, if they're a Christ follower, they're more alive now than they've ever been. Amen? And they need to see that in you and me. That's going to speak loudly to a culture far gone from God. And I tell you what, I tell you what, if we don't bleed that strongly in the resurrection, then like Paul said, we are a pitiful lot. Recently, uh, well, not recently, for a while now, we've been using Facebook to talk to some of our kids. And uh, oftentimes I get to talk to my little grandson, Roan, who's two. And uh, he went through a phase. He's not so much in that phase now because he's two. He's more independent. But he went through this phase where you would say, Rowan, shimmy, shimmy, shake, shake. And so no matter what he would do, he'd start dancing. <laughs> kind of this shimmy, shimmy, shake, shake thing. I think it was from some book or some, something he saw. So he's busy. So he'd be running to get a toy and you see him running away from you on Facebook. And then you'd tell, shimmy, shimmy, shake, shake. And he'd just do it while he's getting his toy. And it would be the cutest thing. Of course, my grandkids, you know, they're, they're abnormally cute. But at any rate, I don't have any balance whatsoever in regard to grandkids. But I get a kick out of it. Well, I get a kick out of this dance called the floss. You know that. Not the teeth floss. The, and so uh, the Weeses are sitting over here. But Faith does a really good floss. They're, they're their oldest daughter. So I'll frequently see Faith out there. And I'll say, hey, Faith, floss for me a bit. And she'll just start flossing. I can't do it. I don't have that rhythm, really. And my grandson Jackson does a mean floss, too. Just really, and I just love it. Well, there, there's a reason I'm mentioning all this. Some things in life ought to get us dancing, amen? And the resurrection of Jesus Christ ought to get us dancing. But more than that, and this is point two, the reference to Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep tells us a resurrection harvest is coming. And that ought to get us shimmy, shimmy, shake, shaking or flossing a little bit here. It ought to get us a bit excited because, see, Jesus being the first fruits means he's the first of the produce to come. And so we live, my friends, in the age of grace between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. We live in this age of grace. And Christ has illustrated for you and I what lies ahead for those of us who place faith in him. Like he's been resurrected from the dead, you and I too, when we die, will be resurrected from the dead. Amen? And that ought to get you shimmy, shimmy, shaking, shaking. Doing a little floss. Some of you can do the floss really well. It's okay to get excited. Amen? 
And that this ought to get us excited because then people ask, why are you so excited? And then we can share the hope we have in Jesus. So here's a reflection question for you this morning. Has the resurrection changed you? That's how we begin the message this morning. The resurrection changes everything. And we're ending with this thought. Has resurrection changed you? Are you excited about that? Has it changed your vocabulary? Do you think differently? You know, I say oofda because I was raised that way. I mean, it's just ingrained in me. When we become a Christ follower and we understand the resurrection, it should change some of our language. It should change how we think. It should change our heart and change how we live. We should be living with, as people with great hope. Amen? Death has been mastered by our master. It's lost its sting. And we don't mourn when we go to uh, the uh, you know, funeral of a friend who in Christ as those without hope. We mourn as those assured of our hope of resurrection in Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you this week, shimmy, shimmy, shake, shake a bit. Some of you who are more coordinated, don't look at me. Look at someone that knows what they're doing, but do some of that flossing. And get excited about the resurrection. Let it preoccupy your mind. Let it sink into your heart the significance of it. Let it spill over into the way you live and how you talk with other people. And then we're worshiping. Amen? And then we're becoming a church that's effective in an era that's far gone from God. Maybe this is the way we begin to reach such ones. Then in the proper time, in the proper order, we can begin to have robust conversation about the inerrancy of Scripture and the accuracy of Scripture. I'm not saying that stuff doesn't matter. It matters tremendously. It just has to find its proper place. Amen? So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you as our resurrected Savior this morning. And we know that you are the first fruits. You're the promise of what's to come. And that we too who have placed our faith in you, Jesus, and I pray everyone here this morning has done that. And I pray if they haven't, they do. Place their faith in you, Jesus, as Savior and as Lord. For those of us who have done that, we've been promised, Lord, that in this age of grace, that we too will experience the power of God that raised you from the dead and it will raise us from the dead. Hallelujah. Blessed be your name, Jesus. May we live with that hope prevailing in our minds, ministering to our hearts and spilling over into our lives, God. We love you today, Jesus. We thank you that you came and you died on purpose for us. And even in your death, it was miraculous. It changed the heart of a hardened Roman centurion. And then your resurrection, Lord, was just witnessed by so many and so essential to our faith. I pray that we would never lose that focus. We love you, Jesus, and praise your name. And all God's people said,